So by way of reminder, just this is a quick pulse check. You can see right here on the screen that's working. What we've been doing in this series is we looked last semester at this question. And we, to, that to be human is to be created in the image and likeness of God. Then we moved on to this topic. To be created in the image of God includes being embodied. So we're not just spirits, we're not just bodies, but we are material and immaterial combined. Then we moved to this topic, and this is where we are. To be created in the image of God is not just to be embodied, but it's to be gendered. And so we spent a lot of time talking about what gender is, what gender is for, why God created binary genders, what is a man and what is he for, what is a woman, what is she for. And now we have been working through, so we didn't finish this last semester, so we picked up, and we are working through, we just finished marriage last week, and so following on the topic of marriage is the topic for this evening. What is sex? What is it for? What are the effects of sin and the gospel on sex? And so this is going to span multiple evenings, and this is where we're really going to zoom in, not this evening, and perhaps not the next time that we meet, on the issues of LGBTQ plus and more. They've been peppered in all along as we've gone through, but we will really take some time because by definition, LGBTQ plus defines themselves, their selves, by their sexuality. And that's a significant reality that we have to think, uh, think through, and so we'll, we'll spend time on that. But for now, let's jump into this topic of, of what is sex. But first, no class next week. Okay, all right, no class next week. So what is sex and what is it for? So these statements that I'm about to make are built on basically everything we just heard in the previous weeks on marriage. And so I'm taking those truths and using those to define rather than rehearsing all the same texts over and over again. So what we learn first and foremost is that, is that sex is a pre-fall creational gift exclusively for marital good. Sexual intimacy is the highest physical interpersonal intimacy achieved as a sign of the marital covenant union where two become one flesh, right? So that's, that's Genesis 2, God makes Adam, later he makes Eve, presents Eve to Adam, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called Isha because she was taken from Ish, woman from man. Marital sex is designed by God to be unitive. Think unifying, right? The oneness. It's bonding and oneness, not just physically, but mentally and physically and emotionally and physically again and spiritually between spouses. So the entire human, so that we learn to be in the image of God, is to be both material and immaterial, so unlike our world, which would say that the physical act of sex and sexual intimacy is only physical, 
with no emotional, I mean, there's, there's agreeance that there's emotions involved, but there's a spiritual component or unique unitive and bonding component our world de denies. And that's been especially denied ever since the sexual revolution of the late 60s, early 70s, and is now in its final iteration or a significant iteration right now with LGBTQ+, where what you feel is what you are, and yet the sexual act doesn't have a spiritual meaning. That's an inherent contradiction. Not, not everybody in the world thinks that. Some will have new age ideologies around sexual intimacy. While scripture does not speak directly on this, I believe that sex is the unique and special covenant sign between a husband and wife. This is me speculating, and I could be totally wrong, but let me explain. When God makes a covenant with people, he almost always gives a sign to attend that covenant. So when God makes a covenant with Noah, or makes a covenant with humanity through Noah, what's the sign of the Noahic covenant? Rainbow, right? And then when God makes a covenant with Abraham, what's the sign associated with the Abrahamic covenant? Circumcision. When God makes a covenant with Moses, what's the covenant sign for the Mosaic covenant? Close, not Passover, it's a good guess. What's that? Nope, good guess. John, what? Nope. Good guess. Good guesses, all wrong, praise the Lord. The sign of the Mosaic Covenant is the Sabbath. I know that someone was going to guess that next. And then what is the sign of the New Covenant? There's a twin sign. Hint, you saw it just on Sunday. Baptism. And since your baptism is your entry sign into the new covenant, what is the ongoing sign of covenantal participation? The Lord's Supper, communion, right? So scripture does not say, but what scripture does say in Malachi, again, a verse that we've already looked at, is that marriage is a covenant between man and wife. And there's something that's exclusive only to the marriage covenant that can't happen with anybody else, and that is, that is sexual intimacy. So that's my speculation. That's a speculation. Scripture never says it's a sign, but just think about that, which you will. So again, what is sex? Sex, as a creational good, is not to be shamed or shunned. This is very important, and we'll begin to unpack this more as we go along. But there, there is um, these notions, even in Christian circles that somehow sexual intimacy is, is dirty or, or there's this notion that it's almost a, a, a post-fall reality, that it's not a creational good gifted to husband and wife prior uh, to the fall. So it should not be shamed or shunned. As a creational good, marital sex is not to be viewed as dirty or wrong. And again, here's some conceivablys for you. We've done this before conceivably god could have made us non or asexual or we just self-replicated what is that meiosis mitosis mitosis right i mean there, but he didn't so he he didn't he didn't make it where we self-replicate conceivably god could have made sex utilitarian 
and not pleasurable. Conceivably, God could have made sex non-unitive, meaning without intense mental, emotional, physical, spiritual union and bonding. And conceivably, God, of, God could have made sex non-exclusive between a husband and wife, but open to any and all. We, we talked about that regarding the uniqueness of marriage between one man and one woman. So these hypotheticals, conceivably God could have done those things, but in his gospel plan, he, he had to do this plan. This, this is his gift, his gift to us. So we're going to work through this next section. Why did God gift sex? And by way of reminder, exclusively to marriage. So we'll go through these. There's a, a handful of them all the way through page 37, and I'll pause along the way to see if there's any questions as we go through each one. So as you think through the totality of the Bible, the Bible actually gives us many clues as to why God invented sex when he conceivably didn't have to, and why God gave sex exclusively to, to marriage. So the first one that we see is that the reason God gifted sex is because it's a God-given, built-in desire and therefore drive to marry. A God-given, built-in desire and drive to marry. For example, 1 Corinthians 7. But because, Sam, there's um, back over there on the table. First, first uh, whatever, Corinthians 7, 2. But because of temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Down to verse 9. But if they cannot exercise self-control, talking about unmarried people here, if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So there's a text that God's design for sexual intimacy is a God-given desire that is supposed to be a drive to become a man or woman um, capable and worthy of being marryable in Christ. Here's some more. Hebrews 13.4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Adulterous. Now, wh why am I putting this here? This verse is a counterbalance to the First Corinthians passage, meaning that the proclivity of humanity is to pursue sexual immorality, and we see it on full display in our culture right now. But with God's invention of marriage, what we see is that when we're, it's supposed, marriage is, the desire for sexual intimacy is supposed to drive to marriage. And here we see this warning that even when you're unmarried and married, how you express your sexuality in marriage and outside of marriage can honor or dishonor. It can um, bless or defile the marriage bed. And there's a strict warning, God will judge the se sexually immoral and adulterous. 
Marriage is to be honored among all people. Just think about that statement. Let the marriage be held, marriage bed held be, in, be held in honor. Sorry. So the writer of Hebrews expects from the word that all people everywhere would view marriage between a man and woman as honorable. Meaning marriage is to be revered, it's to be respected, protected, esteemed, precious, and valuable by all people. It's to be viewed as a good creational gift. So hold on to that. Next, by way of definition, this word, this phrase, is sexually immoral, it refers to any sexual expression outside of marriage which acts as future defilement of the marriage bed. This is an example of Scripture's high premium on chastity, namely refraining from any and all sexual intimacy or expression outside of marriage. Now, where we're going with the gospel, and when we start looking at the effects of sin on marriage, and the reality that Jesus says that if anybody has looked lustfully on another person. They've already committed adultery in our heart. Every single person is guilty of sexual morality of some type or another. All of us are. All of us are. But the warning of Hebrews is that there needs to be, and, and, and the reason I'm saying that is because the gospel redeems and cleans and rescues from all sexual morality. So we're, we're going to get there. I want to give that peek ahead. But nonetheless, the Bible gives stern and strict warnings as with sexual sin as unique, uniquely devastating sins. And when I've talked to different people, when I've talked to college students, just all different people, but people, what I found even with Christians is they want to know what's the line of physical intimacy I can move towards before I start sinning, right? So, so how, how close to unholiness can I get? And that it's still okay in God's eyes is really what's behind the questions. But in the Bible, sexual morality is any sexual expression outside of marriage. And it has an impact that defiles your future marriage bed and more. The gospel redeems, but there's complications. So we'll, we'll circle back on this when we start talking about sin Adulteress speaks to um, any sexual expression while married to someone other than someone's spouse, to, to your spouse. The Bible uses a handful of different terms to refer to sexual sin. And so adultery is always a reference to any type of sexual sin outside of the covenant union between a husband and wife. That's, that just falls under the rubric of adultery fornication or sexual immorality those are junk drawer terms that just anything that someone can think to invent that is somehow sexual goes into that drawer of yes it's sin don't engage in it and as i just said the death of christ forgives sexual sin his blood washes white the stains of a shameful and guilty conscience and at the same time, Scripture offers uniquely strong warnings against sexual sin. So, in this first point, the reason why God gifted sex 
is to be a, a built-in drive to get married sooner rather than later, Lord willing, because it's better to marry than to burn, as we, as we burn with passion, as we read right here. And also these warnings for chastity outside of marriage so that the marriage bed is not defiled, and same thing with adultery. So, we've just coming off this big talk on marriage and why God made marriage, and here we see that sex is an is a, um, impulse to get married. So I want to ask us, what are some of the implications, what are some of the ramifications of our world's perspective on sex and sex not necessarily attached to marriage? What are some implications do you guys think? Yeah, Sam, go ahead. Roe versus Wade. Stand by. Hello, hello. Good. I would say the biggest one that we see right now, aside from all the others, um, is the Roe versus Wade argument. You know, children in the womb have become an inconvenience to our sexual liberation. And, uh, and people would rather kill a baby than, than face up to their actions. What else? So God says your sexual desire is meant to drive you to get married. Our world says, no, it's not. So because of our world's, what are some of the ramifications, implications of our world's perspective that, you, that hookup culture is cool? For people, um, college, early 20s, it's like, it's easy, it's fun, try this, do this. And then like STDs and all these other awful diseases are spread so quickly. And like I've met and known so many people with those. They're like, oh yeah, I got tested. Like, I'm like, gross. <laughs> like, that's not okay. So, like, that just is, like, a huge thing. Like, I think just our age and, like, culture. Yeah, being, being sold the lie that there aren't consequences. What else? Yeah. It loses its value and its importance in a marriage and in a relationship. If you just do it all the time, it doesn't matter anymore. Excellent point. John. It's no longer honored the way it should be. This morning I heard two young guys um, walking on the sidewalk and they were talking about it very openly and talking about how they were doing some things and their roommates were doing some things. And I, it, it just blows my mind how easy it is for people to see no problem with just doing it outside of marriage. So, Yeah. And, you know, we'll, we'll, get, we'll get to it more, but tied in with that is when you – when you live in a world now that says to be the true you and to be your authentic self is to follow your desires. And if your desire is to hook up with that person, that's you being true to yourself. And we live in this world that's saying it's a moral wrong to restrain what you feel. When Jesus says, die to yourself and bear your cross and follow me, which is what we're supposed to do. So you can see there's, there is, we're currently in a cultural moment that could not be further apart 
from what it means to follow Christ and die to yourself. And the world says, well, plug. This book just came out. It's called Don't Be True to Yourself. I'll, I just got one copy to review. It's already excellent. I, I wish I had a bunch of copies to hand out um, to you guys. But yeah, excellent point. What else? Anything else? Did you have something? Sorry. Yeah, Isaac. I think it generally pushes back the age people might get married because if you're having sex, then you may see marriage as less significant and maybe get, get my life together first, then pursue marriage, something like that. I think that's common in the world. My, a college group I went to, the college pastor said from the pulpit, why buy the cow if you're getting the milk for free? Um, I actually have a question yeah. in relation. So all of the examples that people have mentioned, um, I don't believe are mutually exclusive to people who are unmarried versus married. Uh, people can get STDs and people are born with HIV uh, and AIDS and can pass that regardless if they're married or not. Same with having a kid and choosing to abort it. That can be somebody who is married versus unmarried. And same with um, you know talking about it. I've heard, you know, plenty of men who are married who like to talk amongst themselves about it. And same goes for, you know, um, the importance of marriage. I see plenty of people who have still gotten married very early, despite the fact that they were having sex much earlier in life. Um, I don't believe that's mutually exclusive. So would you say that is more um, immoral, like standalone, as opposed to immoral because it's marriage versus unmarriage. I don't know if that makes sense. Um, well, let me, let me see. So sin is an equal opportunity employer. And so just because you're married doesn't mean sexual sin stops. Uh, that temptations and desires and things like that don't stop. But what we do know statistically is that yes, a, a husband and wife can bring an STD or whatever they're called these days into a marriage, but the prevalence of spreading is statistically more among a... Um, a promiscuous lifestyle. And certainly, when you, if someone has an STD and then gives birth, they can absolutely pass to a child. And, um, but yeah, so that's, that's something to, to recognize. And, and we're distinguishing between, again, why God gave marriage is the desire is not to go sow your wild oats, not you, but just anybody, or the, what, what you hear, way people talk, it's, it's meant to enter that exclusive union between a husband and wife. So, not sure if that answers your question very well. Yeah, Genevieve. Um, um, I know people. I live around people. And even some that go to church friends and people from long time, they're, they lost their husbands, they're not, um, for a long time they're single, but they're, they, there is a lot of people, women, older women, um, that go to different partners. They've been together, they might say they're getting married, but they live together. 
and then several months or years, they go to another one. And two people that, one is a cousin of mine. I, I was really, um, she knew her, um, a lot of biblical stuff, but the thing that really kind of, that I didn't like was that she, she found a boyfriend and they are living together. And another friend of mine that I grew up with, um, I know she lost her husband, she has kids. And the next thing I know, she says, um, I'm with a boyfriend. So these are people that are maybe 30s, 40s, maybe they got divorced or they lost their husbands. And instead of honoring um, having a boyfriend or something and going to church and getting married like it might be, they're like just living together without marriage. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're gonna, what we're gonna see in these points is a, a cumulative piece or cumulative arguments can be made. So again, think of like a, a, a diamond or something like that that has multiple facets on it. There's multiple reasons that the Lord invented sex and gifted it to the husband and wife and they together create a, a, a picture uh, that's, that's really unique. And what, what makes it so difficult in our day and age is the, the sanctity of physical intimacy is dishonored and disregarded by our culture in every capacity. And it's, it's seen in how sexuality is portrayed in, in movies and in shows, um, especially in social media, to be sexually enticing, to get more likes and more and all these different things, is that there's, there's appealing to people's sexual desires to make advancements in the world. And we just moved off our section on marriage, but we know that marriage is unbelievably devalued in our world. No fault to divorce because, well, if, I, if you're no longer meeting my needs because I don't like the way I feel about you, since to be true to myself, I, I wanna like someone more, then you, you leave the marriage. It's, these, it's the devaluing of God's design. When you devalue God's design, it degrades his goodness in, in life. But what we're focusing on here is not just the world's perspectives contrasted with Christ's perspective, but how many Christians don't have a biblical view and commitment to biblical marriage or biblical sexuality? And that's what's so important. So if, if, it, if, it's, if it's true, and I don't know that it is, I don't think that it is, but if it's true that the divorce rate in the church is similar to that in the world, then something is severely broken because marriages are broken and the understanding of marriage is broken and more. But yeah, Olivia, go ahead. Okay, so growing up in the church, I saw a lot of people get married young and get divorced because they leaned into 1 Corinthians 7, 9. Um, they should marry, for it is better to marry than burn with passion. And then passion died as soon as they got married. And something a mentor taught me back in Phoenix was the world, like sex is not between the two people and the world. It's between the two people and God. 
And, like, that's, like, the biggest difference and, like, break apart and, like, from the world and how everyone around me views it versus, like, how it should be. And growing up in the church, don't talk about sex. You never talked about sex. It was wrong to talk about sex. So when you move away from home, you first hear the world's view because you were never taught it in church. Your parents never talked about it with you because it's just like, oh, it's like taboo. You can't talk about sex to your kids. You can't talk about it at church or at youth group, whatever the case is. So it's like you move away and like, boom, like <laughs> sex, drugs, all these things that like you never really had to know about or hear about before. And it's like, I learned the world's view of sex first and now like reshaping my mind and my mindset towards sex is like really difficult. And I don't think I'm the only one. No, you're not. I think that many of us, if not most of us in the room, that would be true for us in the sense that the world has shaped our initial understanding because the world plays on our desires, right? If it feels so good, how can it be so wrong? It's natural, so yeah. lean into it. All the slogans, all the things that come with it, and, and it's true. It's true that um, by and large, in my personal experience, from coming to Christ at 21, right, right at the end of college, and then being involved in local churches, that the, the topic of sex and sexuality was, is um, not spoken of. Very often at all. That's that's a true statement. So um, w one more comment before we move on is the, you know, Sam, you, you mentioned abortion. And one of the blessings of technological advancement is you have technological advancement. You have ease of life, so to speak, medicines and things like that. But the dark side is that you're able to nowadays have um, a sex change, which is no longer called a sex change, but gender reaffirmation surgery. And um, abortion is, has always existed, but it's uniquely skilled now and more that the technologies that exist marry our culture so that you expressing your sexuality however you want to is celebrated in the eyes of the world and disregarded in God's eyes. So, but let's, let's keep going. So, positively speaking, God's intention is that your desire is a signal and drive to marry. What I, what I didn't add in here, but I'd encourage you to write it in your notes. If you write down 1 Timothy 5, verses 11 through 15, in 1 Timothy 5, verses 11 through 15, the Apostle Paul is speaking to widows. And interestingly, he says, I'll just, in verse 14, so I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. And up in verse 11, he says, refuse to enroll younger widows. For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry. That's a, that's a weird text. What does that mean? Their passions draw them away from Christ. Um, what we know is that the churches would have lists of widows who met certain qualifications to come on the roster of care by the church because they didn't have families to take care of them. 
And what Paul is saying here in verse 11, refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry. He's not teaching they become non-Christians or renounce the faith, but there was some type of commitment they make to be on the role of widows, but now they're desiring is, is to go and get married, the passions, and to get off the role, role of widows. And so they benefited from the church's goods for a season until they found a guy, and then they, um, and then they marry. So what he says is, I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households. So he's speaking to women of childbearing age and encouraging them that they're going to have those desires, those sexual desires. And as to, that's an encouragement for even a young widow to remarry uh, after the passing of a spouse. So let's keep going. So, the, so there's a reason. Reason number two, why did God gift sexual intimacy to marriage? other-oriented service and encouragement. What would be interesting is to, to pause, we're not going to do this, but to pause and for you to take like five minutes and write down all the reasons that you can think of scripturally why God invented marriage, or why he got invented sex for marriage. Um, and I wonder if this would make your list. Other-oriented service and encouragement. So if we had time to read the Song of Solomon you would see the kindness and the praises and the delight that the spouses speak to each other filled with sexual undertones. It's a husband and wife having intimate, playful conversation and encouragement with each other. There is a way that a couple can speak and encourage one another that they cannot speak or encourage with anyone else. It's a, this is purely communication that you see it in the Song of Solomon. So again, other-oriented service and encouragement, 1 Corinthians 7. The husband should give his wife her conjugal rights. And likewise, the wife, likewise, the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, or in the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer but come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. There's a lot going on in this verse. It's very important, this passage is very important to understand. So verse three, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. The idea behind conjugal rights is that each spouse morally owes as their duty meeting the sexual needs of their spouse. That's what conjugal rights is. So it's, it's weird in English, but it's this mutual interbelonging. And again, in verse 4, we just heard that. Notice the mutual belonging. The husband has authority over his wife's body, and 
The wife has authority over her husband's body. That's the biblical command. Verse 5, it's possible for sexual infrequency to be a self-centered sin that enables Satan to uniquely tempt one's spouse. The list presented here is quite short for reasons not to have sex. Namely, there's one, a limited time of prayer. To be sure, there are other factors when you may not be able to have expressed sexual intimacy in marriage, but the reality is that the list is short and the time brief, and it underscores the biblical reality that sex in marriage should be far more common than uncommon, calibrated to the unique needs of a couple. So Paul does not give a formula saying this is how often you should be sexually active. Instead, for each couple, age, stage, circumstances, health, and more, each couple is, and here's the key thing, other-oriented service. That one spouse's goals in sexual intimacy is to completely satisfy and serve their other spouse, their needs over their own needs. This is contrasted then with meeting one's own desires, being selfish. Uh, the beautiful formula is that the husband views his role in sexual intimacy to completely satisfy and serve his wife while at the exact same time, the wife is using her role to completely satisfy and serve her husband. It's an other-oriented relationship and purpose. And what's beautiful is, and, and unique, and con- it's, it, verse 4, is that the ancient world would have no problem with this one. The wife does not have authority over her own body. The husband does, period, end of verse. But what does Paul do? It's, it's reciprocated. The husband doesn't have authority over his own body. The wife does. And that creates a really interesting dynamic. Paul makes clear in verse 6, he's not commanding abstinence in marriage, but allowing for a brief time of refraining by agreement. And that is significant. We'll, we'll get to this at one point. But the, the two things that most commonly people put forward for reasons for divorce or counseling in marriage are money issues and sex issues. And those are the two most volatile, uh, intimate, and important realities. And so what's amazing is that Paul is not talking about abstinence. He's talking about agreement and for short seasons, which means a husband and wife need to talk to each other, come to an agreement with each other for why they're going to refrain from sexual intimacy for a short season, usually because of prayer. 
the logic and principles of 1 Corinthians 7 are that sex, one, should be approached in view of the needs and delight of one's spouse over oneself. So the sexual desires in a marriage are not, are, are um, commonly unequally matched in terms of desire and or timing. But what we see Paul saying here is that one spouse who may not feel like it honors the Lord by serving their spouse, by meeting their spouse's needs and vice versa. But at the same time, we also learn that sex should happen more often than, than not as appropriate to each couple. I keep saying that. As appropriate to each couple. Age, stage, season of life, health circumstances, and more. So there can't be a, there's principles. There can't be a prescription. But what we see the principle is, is that uh, wherever works best for your marriage or future marriage, the um, leaning of scripture is more often than not relative to um, where you are. Each couple must create an environment of vulnerableness and communication, especially when desires don't often align. Neither spouse ought to harm, coerce, force, manipulate, or the like the other. That is sin, and if not repented of, should be brought before the elders and possibly the law. Right? There could be sexual abuse in marriage, and a husband is not free or a wife is not free to sin in that way. It's a sin that needs to be repented of. Here's what this passage also does. This passage prevents the notion of tyranny over the spouse's body. In other words, there will be occasions for each spouse where they forego their sexual desires in service to their spouse who lacks desire. So do you see this is equally weighted? A, sp a spouse may not feel like it, but chooses to serve their husband by, or sp their spouse by engaging, or vice versa, a, a spouse might make an advance and the other spouse says, for whatever reason, and then they stop the advance because they want to honor their spouse. So the, the logic of this passage is beautiful and can only be understood as being other-oriented service and more care about the other person than yourself. That's one of the reasons why God designed sex and marriage to be unitive, unifying, where, again, it's other-oriented service and encouragement. At the same time, the passage prevents one spouse from habitually and frequently denying the other. Conjugal rights expresses the notion of duty, even if one does not feel like it. So when you think through all the details of this passage, is that if one spouse characteristically is denying the other spouse to a fault, then, then there's, some, there's some issues that probably need to be repented of, and that's, that couple might need help um, with getting counsel and encouragement and prayer 
from some close friends, trusted people, pastors to help them um, in this area. Because this is a sensitive area. When you talk about sex and sexuality, the vulnerability and pursuing and all of those things, there's there um, can be embarrassment, there can be a uh, lack of self-confidence, all manner of things that can make sexual intimacy in a marriage difficult. As an act of loving, other-oriented service, both spouses need to welcome vulnerable communication of desires, wants, needs, discomforts, dislikes, fears, etc., so they can joyfully and delightfully meet each other's needs. So this is point number two. The first one was the desire for sexuality is to drive us towards marriage, biblical marriage. And now we see that in biblical marriage, it's fundamentally other-oriented service and encouragement. Any questions on this point before we move to the next one? Questions, you can ask a question for a friend. Ron. Yeah, um, it wasn't addressed here, and I haven't seen it addressed. I don't know if it's going to be addressed in the future for the other points that you might be coming into. Uh, how about couples who are in uh, the military and they're separated for a great deal of time? How about couples where the husband is going, or the wife even today, going away for such a long period of time? How important is it to come to a agreement or what type of agreement could that be that could work either way? You know, that's a good question. So uh, in a similar way that there could be seasons of illness that would prevent a husband and wife from being sexually intimate in, this, in the same bed because they're still together. And so that's a season of uh, fasting, as it were, to use that, phrase, that word in a different way. That's no different from the, hus the husband or wife who's across on the other side of the world for work or military or something like that. I would take a number of steps back and whether one of them is in the military when they are engaged or chooses to join the military after they are married, that has to be an important conversation between the two of them that the spouse supports it because if the wife is gonna be a drone operator uh, or something like that and so she's deployed and she leaves but the husband wasn't on board with that. There's other issues in the marriage, but, but that could potentially open them where one spouse, husband or wife, could then be uniquely tempted to sexual sin as we've already seen the warning here. So that just needs to be an important conversation. Yeah, great question. What else? Anything else on this about other-oriented service and encouragement? So husbands and future husbands... Your wife needs to know that she is your standard of beauty forever. And whatever Solomon says to the Shulamite, say it to her. Her neck is the Tower of David and her navel is a rounded goblet. Praise the Lord. <laughs> you guys should have said Amen. Okay, here's a third reason we see in Scripture for why God invented 
sexuality exclusive from marriage. It is the private and exclusive physical display of the marital covenant union slash oneness in marriage. So whether or not sexuality is the covenant sign, like I wondered earlier, regardless, the gift of sex by God can only be expressed in marriage. And so there is a sense, uh, theologians will think about the signs of the covenants. So, so when God puts the rainbow in the clouds, God says every time he sees the rainbow, he will remember that covenant. And whenever the Sabbath was kept by Israel every single Saturday, um, it was, in a sense, a re-covenanting ceremony. It was a re-reminder of the relationship that you had with the Lord. So in the same way, when we partake in the Lord's Supper uh, on, a, on a weekly basis, we are remembering that we are still in covenant with the Lord and with one another. Well, sex is supposed to be the only thing that a husband and wife can share with each other. And so in that sense, it's an exclusive physical display of their covenant, and it's a display of their oneness. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And sexual union is the closest that you can get to that. And again, don't think of sex as exclusively a physical act because we are not just physical creatures. We are also spiritual, emotional creatures. And therefore, the whole of the human person is engaged with the other, the, the, the husband and wife. So sexual expression is a unique gift that can only exist exclusively between husband and wife. The only thing that truly, the only thing they truly share among themselves that no one else can. A real sense in which sex is the marriage covenant renewal ceremony that declares we mutually belong to one another and none else. That we are mutually re recommit and recovenant with one another. It reminds the couple they are one flesh. So you can see here that the next one is procreation, right? Kids. We, we usually go to kids first, but what I want you to see is that children are not the primary or pinnacle reason for the gift of sex. They're an absolute reason for the gift of sex, but sex, because it uh, continues after uh, a husband and wife can't have children anymore, or if they're unable to have children, there's still benefits. It's not that, well, we're infertile, therefore we're going to stop having sex or menopause has happened, therefore we're going to stop. No, these other reasons sustain marriage. And yet, the fourth reason that we see from Scripture is procreation. In, in God's brilliance, look at that word, procreation. We use that word in English, but this, this means that, that in some way, we know that God knits us together in our mother's wombs. We know that um, God is the one who opens and closes the womb. He's the one who grants conception or, prevent, uh, or, or prevents it. So, so new life, all life, belongs to the Lord. And yet God has chosen not to speak to trees and rocks and then just have a baby 
turn out of a rock. He has chosen to take Genesis 1 and then have Genesis 2. God speaks all things into creation, then he makes his creatures, and God continues his creaturely or his creative act of creatures through procreation. And so when God gifts us with children who are a blessing from the Lord, here's the, here's the command. This is a command. Genesis 1:28. God blessed Adam and Eve and said to them, "Be fruitful and multiply." How do you do that? You have sex and marriage, and then God blesses children. Fill the earth, and then subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea. So this first part is the procreation, to be productive. So there's the command. This is the creation commission. So that's the fourth reason why God gifted us with, with sex. Uh, I, I didn't ask, so any questions on number three or number four on, on children and the private exclusive physical display of oneness in marriage? Sure, go ahead. Um, I'm just wondering, so if a couple, like they're able to have kids, but they decide not to, is that a direct sin against God's order to be fruitful and multiply? you know, like, for however long they decide not to? Or is it a, like, you know, they just choose not to for a bit, and that's okay? I think oftentimes, yes, it's a sin. With a whole bunch of caveats. Okay, so, so the whole bunch of caveats is, let me, I have a specific example. Uh, my wife and I knew a couple that lived in Southern California, and they, well, here, actually, let me just say it this way. We have known many couples who deliberately chose n not to have kids or one kid or two kids and then, and then deliberately stop and take medical intervention so that they could have a certain type of lifestyle. They wanted to have the kids young to get out of the house young so they could live in retirement they wanted to be able to travel, those different, so, it's when, so the reasons were inherently selfish and self-centered. And then when pressed on, um, well, hey, can you, can you give a, a brief biblical theology of children in the Bible and, and what God thinks, what's God's role with kids, what does he think, and more, they, they, they couldn't. And so... It would be an a, um, unintentional sin, but a sin nonetheless. The scriptures speak of unintentional sins. And so it was a matter of ignorance and discipleship that they weren't discipled and they just simply didn't know and they had really just drank in the world's Kool-Aid that children weren't a blessing and they shouldn't have a full quiver to shoot out as the Psalms talk about and more. So that's why I said sometimes. But other times in the history of the church, there's been people who've chosen to be single or to stay childless, to go into the mission field. But I'm not confident that a couple going into the mission field and staying childless for that reason, I'm not 100% confident that that's as godly as it sounds. But that's just Dave speaking. But I have some verses behind what I'm saying. But that's a really good question. So my challenge would be that we, we as a church, because we're going to get to kids, a theology of kids, but we live in a culture where when I watch Hulu and then the commercials on Hulu, 
there's one for like Petco, but it opens up with people with strollers walking of different ages and the happy couple walking along and there's a gay couple and they're all have their, their kids and they go into the store and they're looking for something and you find out that it's their pets. And they're talking about their, children, their, their pets as if they're kids. And what we see with delayed marriage is that then delayed uh, people who cohabitate, delay marriage, get pets, and then the pets kind of satisfy that desire because they treat them like they're kids. And so uh, we love pets. Everybody should have pets. All pets should be in Christian families with Christian kids to play with. <laughs> Great question. Controversial one. Yeah, Brandon. as a married couple, like there wasn't birth control up until very recently in human history. So that command to have sex was inherently a command to have children. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, there, there are ways to prevent childbirth and conception in the sexual act that um, before modern technologies. But yes, that, that really is that really is the case where um, God's the one who opens and closes the womb and we, we trust him in that. So there, there's a lot more detail in there, but I, I, what I wanna suggest is that the, I wanna encourage everybody to think about being more open to having children and more children than not and to have really deep prayer robust biblical understanding of decisions that couples make. I think that that's, I think it's an important start. Yeah, two more questions. Um, what is the general consensus in regards to adoption or fostering? Is the sin itself not, or is the sin itself because you are not physically birthing a child from the womb or just not having children? So adoption is about as close to the gospel as you can get because that's what God has done for all of us where we were aliens and strangers and he adopted us into our family and to his family where he's our father. That's the Christian name for God. And so that's why we're all about adoption and foster care and strongly encourage it. That's why, just a good question. Thanks for the plug. Guys, remember on the 23rd, is the AZ-127 Adoption and Foster Care Find Your Place event. Please go to it. And it's not just about you fostering in your home, but it's also seeing how you can support the whole foster care system. So we're all about it. But do you believe it's a sin if the couple chooses not to ever bear children because they would rather adopt or foster? It is not a sin not to adopt. Did I say that right? The Bible does not require anyone to adopt or do foster care. Um, if a couple says we're choosing not to have children, I would just want to have a counseling session to say why. Is, is there a medical reason? Is there, is there, is there something going on? Um, or is it um, I the, the wife doesn't want stretch marks and wants to retain her figure, right? There's just like so many details to get into. So there needs to be a willingness to have children is the principle. 
And I would encourage everybody to be willing to adopt in foster care. So is adopting not considered having children just because it like didn't come from that mother's womb? I'm speaking about bearing children. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But when you adopt a child, that's, praise God, that's your child. Uh, we should all adopt 20 children and give them our last names and love them like no one else has. Yeah, I mean, it's beautiful. Absolutely. When I said we should all, that was a hyperbole. I'm not trying to bind any of your consciences. It was a really good question. What else? Yeah. Or who's got a mic? Okay. So you said something along the lines of like sex being exclusive to the marital relationship between husband and wife male and female. So what would you call what goes on in a same-sex relationship or marriage? Because they're still, like, I guess, doing the same act, but it's not biblical sex. So what would you describe that as or call it? Yeah, so, so on our, when we're talking about marriage, the first thing that we saw is that God does not... Um, uh, the definition of marriage is one heterosexual man, one heterosexual woman, and your sexual identity corresponds to your biological identity. Like what are all the things we have to say, that's biblical marriage. So this would not be a marital covenant union or act. It would just be a different species of sexual sin, what the Bible calls fornication, right? So the, so the, the guy and the girl hooking up right now on campus, and then the same sex people hooking up are all fornicating and there's just different species of sin. But we'll talk about that more when we get to it, that, that topic. Any other questions? Was there one more? Yeah, go ahead. Would you consider having a surgery as middle-aged couple having a surgery where they cannot have kids still sin? I don't think that that's sin. Yeah, I, I think that, again, there's a, there's a principle of a willingness to have children. Um, and there's people who disagree with me, right? But I don't think it's a sin. I think that every couple should have a, it's a heart posture. Lord, we want to want what you want and to have your, your same, your, your perspective. We want to follow you. Uh, but wouldn't go so far as the Catholic Church to say that any birth control is sin. And that'd be a form of, of birth control and whatnot. So, uh, yeah, I don't think that that's... But again, it's case-specific. So I, I, know, I know those couples where we had our two kids, we had them early, and then uh, he got a vasectomy so that they, there's no way they can have other kids because they want to retire early and sip my ties on the beach, right? So I want to talk to them about like that, that decision. Yeah. Very good question. Go ahead. So I, I was, you know, just, on, just based on some of the other questions, and especially for those who aren't married, um, I feel like the whole act of marriage and sex and then bearing children is kind of along the lines of what you were saying. It's a selfless, it's sort of an identifying with Christ. He is the most selfless being, you know, we've ever experienced, right? So I, I think 
kind of following in those footsteps sort of is the natural process of marriage. I think that's part of the reason we're called to marry is because it is a sanctification process of, of just, just his preparing us for essentially eternity, but that it is a, it's a selfless act in itself. It's training you to be selfless. And then to get even more selfless, you're going to bring kids into it. And like what you were saying, you know, there's, there's that aspect of I want kids for my sake or I want kids for his sake, knowing that he's going to say, pour yourself out for your spouse and now pour yourself out even more for your children. And it's sort of a, a, an image of the gospel, essentially, in a kind of, I guess, maybe obscure yeah, way. But. Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's an excellent point. I mean, re- re- great way to put it, right? The, we're, if you, if you uh, went back in your notes, we're just coming off of the gospel and marriage and how the ultimate purpose for which God invented marriage was Ephesians 5, a gospel portrait of Jesus dying to give his bride life and, and more. And so the, the chief gift in that is sexual union. And so there's, don't want to press that too far, but there's just this amazing gospel gift uh, in that. So I'll just stop at that, but excellent point. Okay, let, let's move forward a little bit. We're getting, so procreation. Um, here's something else that's important. Don't miss this one. This is, these are pretty quick. A fifth reason why God gave sexual intimacy in marriage is mutual comfort, especially in sorrow. So in 2 Samuel, David and Bathsheba, the baby dies, and, and notice the language. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son and called his name Solomon. And what we're focusing on here is they're both grieving, had been grieving over the loss of their first child, and inspired scripture chooses to use the word comforted his wife. So another reason is mutual comfort, especially in sorrow. Next. We saw this, but it's really important to see again, mutual protection from sexual temptation and sin. Once again, do not deprive one another, except for perhaps by agreement for a limited time, so that you may devote yourself to prayer. But come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And that, that's a really important piece. So one thing that's really important, just reiterating this, so in marriage, both the husband and wife need to be in regular communication with each other about their needs so as to serve each other by protecting each other from sexual temptation. It's really important to get. And what I find in all my premarital counseling and marital counseling is that men far and away typically have a stronger sex drive than women, typically, though not always. Um, And so there is a missing of understanding with the wife for her husband's needs in a way that she can serve him in that regard. But again, this is not gender exclusive, meaning it's husband and wife. Both the husband protects his wife by giving her her conjugal rights and vice versa. All right. Number seven, here's a seventh reason, mutual delight and satisfaction. Again, see the Song of Solomon. Read Proverbs 5. Go read those passages. 
but pointing out this one verse. Be intoxicated always in her love. Um, Do you see that word? Do you see the word the Bible chooses to use to describe? And in this, if we had time to go to verses 15 through 20, it's talking about the husband's delight in the beauty of his wife's naked body and more. And so this always intoxicated with her love is not, when it says love, it's not just talking about sexuality. It's talking about all that attends to kind of what we say being in love. But the description is that the husband is to be intoxicated always in her love. And that word intoxicated negatively The Hebrew term can refer to staggering of drunkenness or being led astray. But here, the term is used positively in a sense of being swept away with delight in one's wife. I got that from the ESV study Bible notes because it was so good. Or swooning with love. So part of, so then the sexual intimacy was the, is the um, apex. It's the highlight, it's the pinnacle of that husband being drunk in his wife's love, so to speak. So taken from these ideas, read Song of Solomon, read the book of Proverbs, sex should be fun, it should be free, right? Naked and not ashamed, and frequent. Pulling from 1 Corinthians 7. Fun, free, and frequent. Amen? And we're going to stop there. I know sexuality and singleness is coming up, but I want to take any questions that you may have. Paul Burchill, shooting that hand in the air, buddy. So just with the last point, (laughs) are we supposed to take like a Pentecostal point of view when it comes to our wife and sex? Of rejoicing (laughs) and being (laughs) uh, staggering in the joy? What, what do you mean? Do you mean, do you mean how like, there's the charismatic abuses of having spiritual drunk tanks and people actually throwing up? Is that what you're referring to? Sure, That's a real yeah. thing. <laughs> yeah, no, I've watched the videos. Have you heard of that? <laughs> oh, yes. Paul, do not throw up on McKenna. <laughs> Does that answer your question? <laughs> Sorry, McKenna. Someone will delete your name. Someone will not delete your name from that. But I think that that is actually a pretty amazing, inspired passage to spend some time thinking about. And just a word to husbands. Uh, I was going to say young husbands, to all, but to all husbands. You know, you... Uh, you see the girl, you fall in love with the girl, you pursue the girl, and you get the girl, and then you kind of start turning your attention to other things. And this reality of always being intoxicated with, in her, in, uh, you being intoxicated always in her love, she may grow less and less convinced that that's still true. So all husbands of all ages... We need to do what we can so that our wives know that we are 
uh, swooning with love for them and more. What else? Any other, any other questions on these seven reasons from Scripture that all join together of why God gifted sex to, to marriage? Thank you. Um, okay, so my question is actually in connection to like physical beauty. Um, my, I guess the, so what role does say the husband and the wife have towards being attractive to their spouse? Like say, you know, one spouse says you're too overweight and then the other one says, you know, you're not working out or something like that, you know, or you're not eating well. Does that have any connection to, you know, uh, the command in all this? Is there? Yes, that means that husbands should try to lose their belly. Is that what you're asking? Yeah, like, for, I mean, for like either spouse, like, is there some kind of, uh, I don't know. Um, yeah, so, so we know in the bulk of human history, excellent question. Excellent question. Uh, in the bulk of human history, marriages were arranged. Um, or there was a very limited pool of options. And so the hyper superficial pickiness that both men, young men, or single men and single women can exhibit when choosing a spouse, where it's primarily driven by her or his looks, um, where Proverbs 31 is not in view. Does this, is this guy going to be a Proverbs 31 hus husband? We talk about the Proverbs 31 wife, right? She has these amazing qualities, but she's married to an elder who sits in the city gates. So she married a guy who is upstanding in, in the community and is, has a role in civic life in their town. So he's a godly, a godly dude. Um, and, or, just, I am getting answer your question. But you know, in the order that Jesus read his Bible, the book after Proverbs was the book of Ruth. And the Proverbs 31 woman, in Hebrew, the Eshet Gail, the only other place in scripture where that Hebrew phrase is used as, of a woman is of Ruth. But it's also used in the masculine form of Boaz. So when Jesus read the order of his Bible, he would finish, you'd finish reading Proverbs 31. I wonder what that woman looks like, and I wonder what her husband looks like. Meet Ruth and Boaz. That's all about godly character. It's godly, godly character. Uh, um, how does Proverbs 31 end? Beauty is fading and charm is, I don't have it memorized. Beauty is fading, charm is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord Deceit, she shall be praised. Amen, yes, she shall. So, it, so it's looking for the godliness first and foremost in his or her heart. That's first and foremost. I don't want to discount looks. There's a reason why God made beauty and attraction. That is, it is important. So we can fall into one of two ditches where we become some type of hyper aesthetic and hurt ourselves by saying that I'm going to find the person I find the most repulsive and marry them 
to mortify my flesh. That might be a little too extreme. I don't encourage that. And then the other side is to be so hyper picky. Um, she smells like soup. Do some of you know what I'm talking about there? Just two other, yeah, okay. All right, so there's a hyper, hyper pickiness where there's all these problems that you find all these, these faults when um, honestly you have more faults than she does or vice versa, but usually the guy does. So yes, looks are important and traction's important, but we have a tendency to put too much stock in that because our looks change. But also it's really good counsel that when you do get married, don't let yourself go. Um, so do what you can to stay healthy and um, do an LGND to look good naked diet. <laughs> but we can talk about that more. Good question. Any, any other questions or comments before we close? Um, this one is going back to the very first point, if that's okay. Yeah. Um, so in uh, number two, where it refers to sexual, um, like being sexually immoral outside of marriage, um, how would you view that in terms of rape? So, you know, it, obviously it's a sin for the attacker and the enforcer. Is Does it also count as a sin against the victim? Like, is the victim sinning because, like, it's something that is forced upon them? Absolutely not. Okay. Yeah, so, so what, what's tricky here is we're getting to the gospel, but here's, here's what Jesus does for us. What Jesus does is, so shame and guilt run so deep, especially when it pertains to sexuality. It could, and it, it could be sexual sins, horrible sins committed against a person or sins that they commit against somebody else. And that's kind of why when I, when I led off by Jesus saying in Matthew 5 that if, if you look lustfully on another person, you've actually committed adultery in your heart. So all of us are adulterers uh, on, on those grounds. Here's, here's what the gospel does is in the gospel, because Jesus lived sinless, died for our sins, and rose from the grave, and he poured out his blood, it's when we are in Christ, the bride is able to wear white, and so is the groom, meaning his blood cleanses all the sins committed against us and that we've committed, our, we've committed also. And... Romans 8.28 is still true. God works all things for the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So the hope that the gospel gives is in each and all of our sexual brokenness and all the ways that whether it's, it's just um, being taken advantage of, I mean, all, all the, just there's so much sin regarding sexuality. There's so much damage and trauma and I mean, all we can go, I don't think I need to rehearse it for everybody. But what Jesus does in the gospel through his death and resurrection is he's the restorer. It's Isaiah, I think it's Isaiah 51 that says he brings beauty out of ashes. And that's our only hope. 
That's our only hope. It's the hope for the person who did evil things sexually, and it's the only hope for the person who had sexual sins committed against them. So, but specific to the case of, of rape, no, that is, that is, that is, um, he has done a exceptionally wicked sin against her and will burn in hell unless he repents for that sin. So it's very serious. Yeah, very good question. Um, what if it's like two Christian people who are dating, they have sex before marriage and a kid is produced, like they get pregnant, like should they, like, would they repent their sin even though a child is a blessing from God, but it's out of marriage? So it's like, how do you... Yeah, two, two questions there. Like, what about the kid? What about that couple? Yeah. So a child is never sin. And a, and a child is never guilty of, of um, their parents' sins. And so the child is, is, a, is a gift. And that would be an example of the Lord bringing good out of something that shouldn't have happened. But he still brings good. So that child needs to be loved and cared for, maybe adopted um, or something like that. And then with a the couple, it, it had to be case specific. We'd have to figure out what, what, you know, have a conversation. The fact that they, so mature couples can fall into that. Oftentimes it's immature couples and of, oftentimes the guy's actually not a Christian he's just faking it to get her and he's a manipulator ma manipulator and liar and things like that so there's just so many details i don't want to give a blanket statement but that child needs to be loved well and, and cared for well good question yeah right behind you chris first thank you going back to the rape um Uh, the person that has been raped after it has happened, if that person does not burn with passion to have sex ever again, is that a bad thing? Should they not get married? What should go? That's a really good question. Because with, with sexual sin, so you can take two groups. There's the, the sexual sin and the traumas associated with that. Or you could take, earlier we talked about the, the widow and a young widow where Paul counseled getting married. But she may deci decide that she, she may, she's not required to get married again. So the same, so one thing that we're going to get into with sexuality and singleness and something we talked about back in the marriage time section was this idea of the gift of singleness. Now, in the context you just mentioned, that doesn't sound like a gift. So I, I but, but um, what the Bible says is there's people who choose not to marry for a variety of reasons, and that's not sin. It's, it's not sin. And there could be different means that cause someone to reach that conclusion. It could be a season. It could be a short season. It could be two decades. It could be never marry. The, the Lord can change people's hearts. And so, um, so, the, so coming from that example and the desire not to marry is not in itself, it's not sin. It, it might be a, a, a sign that God has not called that person to marry. 
what if they still do want to get married but just aren't passionate about sex? Yeah, that's because a good question. Uh, then it might be, so I'm going off a hypothetical, so I'm just going to, so it could be then that um, from, a, from a biblical perspective, it's, there is so much um, hurt, trauma, sin committed against her, I'm going to assume that there may be a, a lag time of uh, the, the, the healing process takes time. Mm -hmm. And so there could be a desire, but that barrier not to have sexual intimacy, I would counsel the person to, to wait, to continue just to be healed by the Lord and uh, blessed by his gospel and let the church minister to them and love them and care for them and just wait patiently for the Lord to let desires match up because um, to enter the covenant unit of marriage but not willing or wanting to engage in sexual, in sexual intimacy will create a, a whole host of problems for the husband, and presuming in this case. So a lot of details in there, but that's a really good question. Was there one back there? Paul, Brandon, one of you guys? Oh, you're pointing. Thank you for pointing. Uh, how about I'll close this in prayer, and then you can leave if you need to, but I'm happy to talk about more, more questions. The aim this evening was to focus more on the goods and the positives and the blessings of why God invented uh, sexuality. But this world that we live in, there is so much sexual sin and brokenness that we have to have these conversations. And the next section is on sexuality and singleness. The section after that is on sexual sin. And then, uh, and then after that, it's going to be talking about LGBTQ plus stuff and then get to the gospel. But got to bring the gospel uh, forward early on these things. Let me pray for us and then take some questions if there's more. Lord, we're talking about a, a sensitive, sensitive topic. I pray that your spirit would minister to us. I know that all of us have regrets, guilts, um, shames that linger, um, pains, and traumas. And the only antidote to all of those things, Jesus, is your shed blood and your empty tomb. You rose to new life and you grant new life to each one of us when we turn to you, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that this evening, whatever regrets all of us may have, that we would not hold on to those and let the enemy, let Satan use those to turn us away from you. But rather, Lord, you, our regrets would be laid at the foot of your cross and we would walk in the newness of life that you have given us. And we recognize that your blood does wash away all the sins committed against us and by us. We thank you, Lord, for the gift of sexual intimacy. I, I pray for those who desire to marry and are single in this room, that you would strengthen them against temptation and that you would, in their singleness, give them hearts of devotion to you, Lord, to serve you in this season and to trust you in the provision of a spouse.
So Lord, we, we commit this evening into your hands and pray this all in Christ's name. Everyone said, amen. All right, feel free to go if you need to and feel free to uh, stay and ask questions. I'll, I, I can hang out.